Who am I? What is consciousness? Can science and spirituality unify as one? And how can psychedelics help us to unlock a universe of possibilities? Big questions that we're deep diving into with Jonas Rosen, founder of Inner Vision Psychedelics, creator of the popular YouTube channel Cosmic Consciousness with Jonas, and a psychedelic facilitator at a legal retreat center called Micromeditation. In this episode, we explore one of the biggest mysteries of life, consciousness, the power of psychedelics and plant-based medicines, the balance and connectivity of science and spirituality, and while healing and awakening are always intertwined. It's time to live wide awake. Hey, it's Steph Dixon and welcome to the podcast. Here we get into the minds of some of the most conscious humans around the world to understand how our actions affect our mental well-being, happiness, and the planet. Because self and planetary healing is really an inside-out job. So let's unpack this human experience together so that we can live wide awake. Jonas Rosen is the founder of Inner Vision Psychedelics, a company offering psychedelic counseling and integration services. He's the creator of the popular YouTube channel Cosmic Consciousness with Jonas, which is dedicated to sharing consciousness, expanding content, and exploring the nature of reality. And he's also a psychedelic facilitator at a legal retreat center called Micromeditation in Jamaica, where they provide compassionate support to others before, during, and after a psychedelic experience. Jonas was drawn to the work after experiencing a life-altering transformation at the hands of psychedelics, leading him on a spiritual awakening and healing journey. He believes that psychedelics could quite possibly be the future of mental health care and are a tool to explore different paradigms of reality. A small disclaimer that this conversation shouldn't be considered as medical advice. This is for information and entertainment purposes only. Jonas, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today, especially because we're going to be talking about psychedelics and mental health. And these are two huge topics that I'm very, very fascinated with and passionate about. And we haven't actually had anyone with your expertise yet on the podcast. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I'd love to start with your first memory or experience actually about hearing about psychedelics or what it was that drew you towards it and what the journey of discovery has been like for you. Oh, that's such a great question. I mean, where to begin? This, uh, you know, my very first memory of psychedelics, ironically enough, was quite a negative and stigmatized view of it. I remember being, you know, like, an eight-year-old child in elementary school. I didn't even know what drugs were, but we had a police officer like come in the room as just like a drug awareness thing and tell us that all these substances are really bad and terrible and cannabis is is going to make your brain go crazy and, you know, all of these things. I grew up with a pretty stigmatized view of psychedelics and, you know, my very first actual encounter with psilocybin mushrooms I certainly wasn't seeking it out. I, I approached pretty, pretty apprehensively because I did have all these ideas swirling in the back of my mind. But, you know, I also had this burning curiosity from a young age. I've always just wanted to, I've always been felt driven to explore this mystery of life and, and the mystery of, of being a human and, and mind and consciousness and all these things. So yeah, I went for it. And, and from that very first psilocybin experience, it was, it was a life-changing experience where I immediately realized that so much of what I had been taught growing up was just pretty much garbage, <laughs> that there is some profoundly meaningful and significant effects to this substance. I mean, considering the fact that our ancestors have been using psilocybin mushrooms, ayahuasca, and all these other sacraments all over the world for thousands of years, it's obvious that this is part of our birthright as humans to explore our mind and consciousness and the nature of reality as we see fit. And it's obvious that there's a, there's a, a significance to this thing. So yeah, I mean, from that first experience, I, I found that, well, I was in college at the time. I was going to college in Nashville, in, in uh, Tennessee, and I had a lot of anxiety at the time about career, about life purpose, you know, what am I doing with my life? And I'm um, just putting a lot of pressure on myself. And I remember in that moment, just feeling that anxiety just evaporate. Like I found myself just so present and aware uh, in a way that I really wasn't familiar with up to that point. 
I remember looking around and seeing like the grass and the, the insects and the, the trees, the clouds, all these, you know, seemingly mundane details of life all of a sudden appeared as miraculous, as incredibly beautiful, as incredibly mysterious, as infinitely detailed and, and, and just, just a stunning, like that feeling of awe just overwhelmed me. I was like, yeah, hey, is anyone seeing this grass over here? I mean, it's really, <laughs> it's really, really amazing. It was just sort of like a reframing where I, I felt like I was connecting to the, the mystery of being a human in a new way. And this was my first experience that I would call a spiritual experience. Before that point, I was an atheist. The word spirituality really didn't mean much to me. But since that time, it's really become the center of my, my, my life and my existence. I realized in that moment, in this, this feeling of awe and, and recognizing the mystery and the miracle of life, that there's just so much more to life than we're usually aware of. And it was a humbling experience. Like you really don't know anything. Like it's, it, it opened my mind to a universe of, of greater possibilities. So there was this healing, like this therapeutic aspect to it where it changed my relationship with anxiety. I wouldn't say it was an instant cure, but it definitely changed my relationship with anxiety. And, and it was also this sort of like metaphysical or spiritual consciousness component to it as well, where it was, we can use this to explore the mysteries of life. And since then, yeah, I, I really dove in. Oh, there's so much there that I absolutely loved hearing and so eloquently put and uh, yeah, so many different directions I can go in. I think I'm going to zoom out first, though, before we dive into the mysteries and, and the consciousness and greater possibilities, because all of that is just like definitely clawing away at me. <laughs> but first, maybe we can talk a little bit because you mentioned about the ancestors and psychedelics and, and plant-based uh, medicines and ceremonies have been run for, for centuries. So maybe you can walk us through a little bit of like a history of how these plants and, have been used in our past and histories and just a little bit of context of, you know, Know, kind of then what happened with the Dragon Wars and, and now how we're getting, you know, we're kind of circling back around to the back to some of the progress that was sort of being made in the 60s, I think it was. So. Yeah, good question. I mean, it's incredibly ironic in a way that these substances are so ancient and yet they're just in a sense being rediscovered. And not only are they being rediscovered, but they really represent the future, I believe. I think that these will absolutely revolutionize the field of mental health care in a very fundamental way. And they are the most advanced, they are the most effective by a long shot mental health treatment in many different respects. This is ancient wisdom. Our ancestors knew this all over the world and for thousands of years. You have anthropological evidence of these things, of psychoactive psychedelic substances being used as spiritual sacraments for thousands of years, right? And in every corner of the globe, certainly in, in Central America, you have documented use of psilocybin mushrooms that goes back at least two or three thousand years in in Europe in ancient Greece in Africa in Australia in India you have soma that's been documented in the Hindu texts in Siberia you have people using Amanita muscaria which is a different type of mushroom it's not a psilocybin mushroom but also has psychoactive effects all over the world and there's also there is some, I mean, it's kind of controversial, but there are petroglyphs, rock art, that seems to display mushrooms and like sacramental use of mushrooms, shamanic use of mushrooms wow. in, in Africa going back to eight or 9,000 years ago. So this is, this is ancient. This is really, really ancient. And not only is it ancient, it's also worldwide. In uh, North America as well, you have use of the peyote cactus of San Pedro. There is the, the uh, Bufo alvarius, the toad that's been used sacramentally in, in Central and South America. So this is a global thing and, and it does go back thousands of years. And so, yeah, I mean, to the second point of your question, there was this kind of renaissance of, of psychedelic exploration in the, in the 60s where when it first came in the scene, I mean, this was like a wildfire through the psychiatric and psychological communities. They, you know, even back then at the time, while it was being studied in the lab, everyone was, gonna, everyone was saying, this is going to change everything. Like everyone wanted to study this. But yeah, I mean, obviously there was a massive cultural backlash when this left the lab. And, you know, admittedly, it was being used in ways that probably are irresponsible, that didn't account necessarily for the risks that these pose 
Because, you know, as a psychedelic facilitator, as a psychedelic practitioner, I think it is important that we talk about the risks of these things as well. They're not physiological, like physically these are very safe, but psychologically this can be a destabilizing experience if it's not used in the proper context. And so that's a very, very complex, like socioeconomic, political thing that happened there in the, in the, in the 60s and 70s with a lot of different factors. And politicians were finding that they could actually win more votes by taking a really hard anti-drug stance. There were deeper elements to it as well, though. Of course, you have the, the, the Cold War. You have, we're sending people off to fight wars and they're like taking mushrooms and talking about love and peace. Like there's a dissonance there. And so the powers that be shut that down, right? And it's very interesting. I mean, there's almost no other field of science, of scientific research that I can think of where progress was going so amazingly well and then it was just halted, completely stopped for like 30 or 40 years. I mean, it's we're really like, for that reason, even in the modern day, I mean, psychedelic research picked back up in the, the 90s and early 2000s. We are just beginning to scratch the surface. We're just beginning to scratch the surface of the true potential here. We're just starting to learn all of the different ways that we can apply these substances for mental health and for uh, deep explorations of the nature of consciousness. So it really started back up in 1991. There was a, a man named Dr. Rick Strassman at the University of New Mexico who did the first human psychedelic study in the United States. I will also say this is kind of a U.S.-centric recounting. I don't know that much about like the rest of the world. Rick Strassman did a, in the early 1990s, did a DMT research study with 60 participants. He administered over 400 doses of, of DMT in a controlled clinical setting over five years. And that was the first psychedelic research, human psychedelic research that happened since that sort of shutdown. And then since that time, it's really taken off. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, giving us a brief, and I know it's a very difficult thing to do because the histories are very complex and there's been a lot that's happened, especially in the last, you know, 40 years as well. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I think again, it's lots that we can go with here. So I think it would be interesting to kind of share a little bit about the different psychedelics and firstly, like what the typical uses are, whether that's the traditional uses or like how they're being used now for mental health. And then maybe we can dive a little bit into your personal experience with the different substances as well. And I understand that a lot of people have different experiences, but I think there are some things that definitely make uh, certain plant-based medicines or psychedelics uh, kind of unique comp comparatively. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. Love it. So, yeah. So, I mean, I guess we can look at sort of the, the, the plant-based, like the classic, what are called the classic psychedelics. So psilocybin mushrooms, right, is these, these mushrooms grow all over the world. Psilocybin and psilocin are psychoactive compounds that, to my understanding, work on the serotonin receptors in, in the brain and induce these, these really profound non-ordinary states of consciousness that in these shifts in, in consciousness, our experience of, of time and space, our experience of our perceptual experience, our emotional experience, as well as our thinking experience is all altered and shifted in ways that are really, really intriguing. I think the same can be said about most of the other psychedelic substances. So we're, we also have ayahuasca, which has been used for thousands of years in, the, in, the, in South America and the Amazon basin, which contains NNDMT, dimethyltryptamine, sometimes called the spirit molecule, as well as a number of other alkaloids. It also contains an MAOI enzyme inhibitor that makes DMT orally active. Um, these are also really, really profound experiences that are similar in some senses to psilocybin, but also just a completely different experience. You know, I, you could you could write you could talk for hours about all the all the differences. So I'll just I'll just keep it brief. Yeah, and then you also have 5-MeO-DMT, which naturally is a, naturally occurs in uh, the Sonoran Desert Toad. NN-DMT and 5-MeO-DMT are generally regarded as the two most powerful psychedelic substances that we know of, just in the sense that they are very, very rapid acting. The experiences are much more, are much briefer, like they only last 10 or 15 minutes, whereas with a psilocybin experience, you're talking four to six hours, ayahuasca, four to six hours, LSD, 
also, you know, like 10 to 12 hours in some cases. LSD is another one that was discovered pretty recently by a Swiss, a Swiss chemist named Albert Hoffman. It's very interesting history there, very interesting story there, because he kind of discovered it by accident, actually. And he described it as an accident that was supposed to happen. <laughs> there was like some synchronous things going on there. He was exploring these, uh, you know, he was, he was a brilliant chemist. He was exploring ergo, like this type of fungus, and he shelved this thing. He didn't see any use for it. He shelved it, and it just sat on a shelf for like several years until it was later. He just had this intuition, wait, like, let me check back in with that thing. And that led to the explosion of LSD in, in modern psychedelic culture. Then you also have mescaline, which is found in the peyote cactus and also found in the, the uh, San Pedro cactus. Uh, this has been used sacramentally by indigenous people in, in North America and Central America for thousands of years. And uh, let's see, you also, one, one other one is iboga. Ibogaine is a plant that's native to Central South Africa. And this has been found to be extremely uh, useful in the treatment of substance addiction, substance abuse. I don't know as much about that one, but I'm really, really curious and interested to learn more. Then you also have, you have ketamine and MDMA, which are not classic psychedelics, but they're kind of grouped together with psychedelics and they are part of this new wave of this, this psychedelic revolution. Ketamine is a dissociative and MDMA is what's known as an empathogen. So it doesn't have psychedelic effects, but it is a shift in consciousness and you feel like it's profoundly mood uplifting. It alleviates a lot of anxiety and it's been shown to be incredibly effective in addressing PTSD in specific. So yeah, there's quite a broad range there. And of course, I mean, you could talk for hours about like the different experiences and the different uses, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that for you to explore where you see fit. Yeah, thank you. It's good to get the full spectrum for those that maybe aren't as familiar with the spectrum. So thank you for that. And let's go back to your experience now. So you talked about it as a humbling experience and, uh, you know, your first sort of uh, interlude into really understanding spirituality and having that higher consciousness. So if you'd be open, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how that exploration went for you and what, yeah, what the experience was like and how your spiritual awakening has evolved over the years. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. Well, a lot of it is really tough to put into words. I, I think going back to that very first psilocybin experience, it was very humbling in the sense that it was a reminder because I was faced with the fact that everything is a mystery. Necessarily, I also had to recognize the limitations of my own knowledge. Whereas before I thought that I knew a lot. Like now I was like, I don't know the, the, I, the tiniest grain of sand. And so this was an, ex yeah. <laughs> yeah, this was an experience of mind opening, right? Like seeing beyond limitations of the mind and just opening up to greater possibilities. This wasn't just a conceptual, like intellectual thing, right? Obviously this was a full, this was a profoundly emotional experience for me. The feeling of awe and reverence, like that feeling that you get when you're standing in a beautiful place out in nature or like in a massive temple or cathedral and it's like this awe therapy, this overwhelming sense of awe and reverence, that was a new experience to me. Or like, at least in that way, it was a new experience to me. And so this was like, it felt like my first encounter with the sacred, the sacredness of life, this, the magic of life, the miracle of life, that everything is a miracle, that, you know, I am a part of this miracle. And so it was like a beginning of an exploration in a new way. That evolved pretty, pretty rapidly. I did kind of dive in from that point, I, I soon discovered NNDMT, dimethyltryptamine. I read this book by Dr. Rick Strassman, who I mentioned earlier, called DMT, the Spirit Molecule, and just was instantly fascinated and began exploring this compound, NNDMT, you know, learning everything I could about it, reading all these trip reports. And since that time, I've really come to, this is something I discuss a lot on my YouTube channel because I do really view DMT as representing a key to unlocking new discoveries about the nature of mind and consciousness and reality itself. This is an absolutely fascinating, it's a fascinating molecule that for some strange reason is endogenously produced in the human body. We all naturally produce DMT within our bodies. Modern medicine has no idea why, why that is. But not only that, it occurs all throughout the natural world in thousands, thousands of different plant and animal species 
common grass contains traces of DMT. We have no idea why, like why this, the most powerful psychedelic compound is found all throughout the natural world, right? And it's, it's a mystery, like from an evolutionary perspective, why? <laughs> so anyway, like this got me thinking in new ways, right? And I did eventually have the opportunity to explore it, experience it for myself. And this is what was a quantum leap for my path of, of spiritual evolution and awakening. Because ultimately what this is all about is the mystery of self, right? The mystery of self. This is the core inquiry, the core question throughout all the world's major spiritual traditions. Who am I? What is the nature of self, of true, of true self? And all the great mystics, all the spiritual visionaries, they tell us that self-knowledge is the key to unlocking awakening, to unlocking higher states of consciousness, right? And so through these explorations with, with DMT, I mean, I think psilocybin, that first experience, kind of set the stage for this all to unfold, right? As well, I was exploring meditation. And, and really, I think the reason I got a lot out of these experiences was because I was approaching in a very intentional way where I was also bringing meditation to the table and really like exploring in a deep way and respecting the profound, like how profound these experiences are. The mix of meditation, of breath work, of intentionality and, and a conscious approach with psychedelics, this is the way, like this is how you get the most out of the experience. With DMT, this is where like words kind of fail me. <laughs> you know, I had a series of experiences that I could, that could, I, I could only really describe as out-of-body experiences. The subjective sense was that consciousness, the essence of my being, the soul, the spirit, whatever you want to call it, temporarily left this lifetime behind, left this reality behind. Terence McKenna, the, a famous psychonaut, described it as a 100% reality switch. So it's like one moment you're in this reality and the next moment you are elsewhere. Your consciousness, um, people often refer to this as a DMT breakthrough where it feels like you suddenly arrived in some other, some other realm of existence, some other dimension of existence. This was exactly my experience. I felt myself in this out-of-body experience, I felt myself arrive in this sort of like transcendent realm that deeply felt like a spiritual sacred place it felt like the only word I can use for it is the afterlife, like some sort of a heavenly realm. There was a profound sense, recognition of familiarity, like I knew this place, I, I had been here before. And just the size of a galaxy or a planet, or I, I, I don't know, just being in this massive space that, you know, everything is moving and I am part of this movement. I am part of this like symphony of life like I'm interwoven into all of this. There was no longer any separation between observer and that which was being observed, right? And just this feeling of unbelievable expansiveness and like, yeah, it's, it's, it, it almost feels silly to put words to the experience, I gotta be honest, because it's just like, it just pales in comparison. But like, there was also this distinct feeling of like coming back into the body. It was surreal. It felt like consciousness was re-entering my physical body, all of my cells, like I could feel it flowing back into my body. Then, and <laughs> I, I just found myself laying there laughing so hard that tears were streaming down my face. And this was the experience that, that changed, changed my life forever, changed my life forever. This idea that, you know, suddenly like all of these spiritual teachings and, and like these, these mystical truths of oneness and non-duality, like suddenly it was no longer intellectual, it was no longer conceptual. It was a heartfelt experience. It was a lived experience. And this idea, I am that. I am that. There's this Indian mystic called Nisargata. He, was, he wrote a book called I Am That. And that sort of encapsulates like the key reflection there is that like, yes, I am Jonas, you know, on the surface. Yes, we have this human identity in this human lifetime, but this question, who am I? What is true self? It goes so much deeper than that. There's so much more to what we are than this one physical body, than this one human identity. And ultimately, it's an expression of unity. Like the idea of waves on the surface of the ocean, on the surface, yes, you have a wave here, yes, you have a wave there, and they are really two se separate and distinct waves. But on a deeper level, there is unity. They're interconnected. They're emerging from the same, the same infinite ocean. 
And this is like, from this one experience, everything clicked. I saw this, I knew this. I knew that we are all one with the infinite. We're all expressions of the infinite, right? And so like, all this spiritual exploration suddenly took on an entirely new tone. It took on an entirely new quality and it became the very center of my life because it is truth. Like, this is how I see it. It is truth and it is like, this also branches off into a lot of different discussions, but since then I, I, I've been working to sort of, and this is a lot of what I do on my YouTube channel, to reconcile science and spirituality, right? Because like growing up so much of my life, I was an atheist. I was a materialist. I thought that consciousness is produced by the brain that like, you know, God is a human fantasy. I mean, it sounds harsh to say, but there's, you know, the afterlife, all these things, fantasy. <laughs> and now I see it fundamentally differently, like the polar opposite pantheism where like every single atom, every single iota of existence is an expression, a manifestation of a deeper transcendent reality in which everything is unified and interconnected. So I do like see that science and spirituality don't need to be separate. They're exploring the same one mystery of life. There's one mystery of life here. Science is more oriented outwardly. Spirituality is oriented inwardly. But of course, it's all one. There's a deeper unity here. And we can be scientific and rational and logical and also be open to the realization that we are infinite divine beings in temporary human lifetime. That's how I see it. So yeah, long-winded answer, but there you go. I loved it. Thank you for going into such detail. It was really fascinating to go on that journey with you. And I, I watched a documentary, which just kind of sparked into my mind on that last point, the last points that you were making about how really like hundreds of years ago, when they first started getting into astronomy and astrology, they were actually one and the same thing. And they then got split at some point when there was stuff that couldn't be explained by the scientific side. And yeah, so astronomy and astrology then split, but actually it came from the same understanding originally. And so I guess where I'm going with this is curious because you've now said, you know, science and spirituality are actually the same two sides of the same coin in a sense, one's out, one's in. And so do you think that we might within our lifetime see more people making those deeper connections because I find right now they are very siloed, you know, like the science is the science and spirituality is spirituality. And there's not much connection and crossover in that. But of course, when I have these conversations and have experiences myself, I also understand that side, you know, like understanding yes. even just like neuroscience and how like the positivity and belief and everything is so interwined. And yeah, I'm just fascinated to hear like, what are your views on that? And what are you seeing um, around that moving forward? It's a brilliant question. Brilliant question. I, I, <laughs> Here's my response. I do believe it's happening. I do believe it's going to take time, but we need this. We need science. We need this unification of, of science and spirituality. Right now, humanity is in a race between consciousness and catastrophe. Not to be alarmist, but this is the world that we live in. We have gotten ourselves into a mess here, and it's because our connection to spirit to the sacredness of life, our connection to the oneness and unity of life has been severed. We've forgotten. We've way over gravitated into the material, into, you know, material science. Science is the new religion in a sense, right? Like there's this irony that it, 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 science is just as dogmatic as religious scriptures, specifically when it comes to the study of consciousness, for example, the, the, the study of the nature of reality. Like here's where it's going to intersect, as I see it, is around the, the, the study of consciousness. This is going to be the next scientific revolution, if you ask me, that will bring together science and spirituality in a new and really profound way. Because I see consciousness as a different word for soul or spirit. Like that deeper life force, the only thing about us that has never changed since day one, since the moment that we were born, that deeper essence, that, that life force, right? So right now, science tells us that consciousness is produced by the complex interaction of neurons in the brain, right? That it's an epiphenomenon, it's a emergent property of the physical brain, that there is no consciousness independently of the physical brain. And therefore, the afterlife, the idea of solar spirit, all of these great spiritual traditions that the wisest people have passed down for thousands of years 
are, you know, a bunch of nonsense. And not only that, but like these, these mystical experiences, these mystical visions, these visions of, of alternate realms and dimensions of, of the universe that mystics have been telling us, you know, Buddha, Jesus, the greatest uh, spiritual visionaries have been telling us of these things. They are essentially seen in modern science as they're pathologized, right? They're seen as exactly the same as a psychotic experience. You know, does it make sense to call mystics spiritually ill? Not really. The study of consciousness, this is really where, what it's, where it's going to be. And even though we're taught, you know, like in classrooms, we're taught this as fact that consciousness is produced by the brain. Any honest scientist knows that consciousness is one of the greatest mysteries, arguably the single greatest mystery that's facing modern science today. It's called the hard problem of consciousness, right? No one has an answer to this question of why isn't all of this brain activity just happening in the dark? Why is there a conscious experience? Even as we get a better understanding of brain function, we can't, we, we can't understand this, this idea of qualia, why it's like something to be you. There is undeniably an inner experience, you know, from this purely materialistic view, theoretically, all of these, this brain activity could be happening in the dark with no one here to perceive it. This is called the hard problem of consciousness. No one can explain this. And so there are new theories that are being introduced, right? One of them is non-local consciousness. This is another discovery that's coming out of quantum physics, that consciousness is fundamentally, our inner world is fundamentally intertwined with our outer experience, with our outer world. This is, this is one of the most significant findings of, of quantum physics, right? Which has been forcing us to at least consider new theories of consciousness. And many leading quantum physicists theorize that in order for this to explain these findings out of, out of quantum physics research, we have to speculate that consciousness is non-local, meaning it's actually outside of space and time. It exists not as a product of the physical brain, but as a fundamental force or essence or quality of reality. And one of the ways that I explain this, that I understand this is like, if you think of a computer, right? Like there is an electrical force, an electrical current, which is animating this computer right now and bringing it to life, so to speak. If this computer breaks and dies, the electrical force still continues. Like the electrical force represents a much greater phenomenon than every, any one device, right? And likewise, the brain biocomputer does not necessarily produce or generate the consciousness that animates it and gives us life. Obviously, they're fundamentally intertwined and interwoven, but consciousness, I think that this is, this is going to revolutionize science when we finally discover that consciousness is much greater. It's a much, much deeper mystery than just this physical brain. Then this is going to open up the possibility for these to begin to scientifically research the non-physical. Here's where it's going to get really, really interesting. There's a quote from Nikola Tesla who says, the day that science begins to, I'm paraphrasing here, the day that science begins to study non-physical phenomena, it will make more progress in 10 years than all the previous centuries of its existence. This is going to revolutionize, this is going to revolutionize the future. Tesla was a visionary. He, he saw this. He, he knew this. But again, it comes back to this idea. It's no accident that all of these things are happening right now because humanity needs evolution and we need a evolution of consciousness. The next evolution is not going to be a physical one. Clever politics is not enough. We need more than external social economic changes. What we need is a, a, a revolution, an evolution of our inner world, of our consciousness, opening minds and opening hearts, recognizing that we are all one, that we're all interconnected, right? And beginning to come together with more unity. So I, I see this as not only is this the destiny of humanity, like from the mystical side of, of Jonas, like this is the divine prophecy of humanity. This is destined to happen. All of the ancients spoke of this. You know, in, in uh, ancient Egypt, in Central America, the ancient Mayans, they had these prophecies. They said, in this day, we know that we are divine beings. We talk about the afterlife all the time. We know that we have an infinite divine soul within every single one of us. But there will come a day where humanity forgets, where we go deep into darkness, 
where we go deep out of balance, where we start to exploit our planet rather than treat it as an extension of ourselves, a symbiotic uh, relationship, and humanity will, will, will lose itself. It will lose its wisdom. It will have oceans of knowledge, oceans of information, but just tiny drops of wisdom, right? And that's where we are right now. But that's not the whole prophecy. They also said there will be a new dawn. There will be an emergence from this time of darkness. I see this as the, as the fate, as the divine fate of humanity, that you know this transition is happening. This is why we're seeing all over the world, we're seeing this great upheaval. We're seeing collapse of a lot of socioeconomic structures. We're seeing you know, this, the, the, the pandemic. We're, and, and it's no accident that uh, the psychedelic revolution is, that the second psychedelic re revolution is occurring in the, at the same time. I even throw in the study of, of UFOs, which can sound like really far out there rela related to the rest of this discussion. But it's interesting to note that on top of all this other stuff, you all now all of a sudden we have UFOs that are being discussed in the media and in our headlines in a new way, which also represents this opening of humanity's collective mind to a bigger picture understanding of reality. It's this confluence of factors and the metaphor that I use to, that has helped me to understand this is like, it's a metamorphosis, caterpillar to butterfly, right? A caterpillar goes into the chrysalis and in a sense, it has to die. It breaks down, it dissolves into this like liquid molecular soup, right? It breaks down in order to create the opportunity for, for something revolutionary, for something, for a new paradigm, for something new to emerge, for like a quantum leap a miracle of evolution. And this is where I see humanity as, as a collective right now. We're very much in the chrysalis phase. Maybe we've just entered the chrysalis phase. Like stuff is breaking down right now. And I do think, you know, this is long term. I do think that probably it will continue to get worse before it gets better. This is the world we live in. So be it. But like it begins within each one of us, right? Like this is the, the key is that it, it's not something out there. This is a co consciousness evolution. So like by you doing your podcast like this, by having these conversations, this is helping other people like just plant little seeds of evolution in other people. It begins within like world peace begins within each one of us. Right. Like, yeah, that was, that was awesome. <laughs> and uh, so it's it's so true. And so how much do you think the psychedelic part of this story is going to be leading the evolution? Or do you think that's just one side of it? And really, it's also about conversations and the science catching up or or the, the intersection of, of the science and the spirituality and the consciousness. Like what what role do you think the yeah the psychedelic movement is really playing in the advancement of this? Great question. Great question. Well, there's a lot of pieces to that. I think it's it's absolutely a very, very... See, I see psychedelics as like, like a tool, right? Like just in the same way that we use a telescope to peer more deeply out into the cosmos, psychedelics represent a lens, a tool that we can use to peer more deeply inwards into the nature of mind and consciousness itself. And this is the foundation of both healing and awakening. By cultivating more self-awareness, specifically of the unconscious mind, this is, the, this is really pretty much the key to psychedelic healing is that most of what we have, most of what ails us in terms of mental illness is not within our conscious mind. It's within our unconscious mind and can be difficult to access in that, in that sense. Psychedelics can really expedite that process and as we're generating more and more self-awareness, then of course we also, it's, this is also an exploration of the nature of the human condition and, and life itself. Just like with the telescope though, it's, it's ultimately not just about the tool, it's about what do we do with the information that we gain from using that, right? Like a scientist doesn't peer through the telescope all day long. They peer through the telescope, they get their data, then they go and they work on what they find. And this is that integration phase, right? 
And so you could argue that, I mean, the integration isn't possible without the experience itself, but the integration is where the rubber meets the road, right? So like integrating this, this knowledge in, on an individual level and on a collective level is what it's really about, not just the, the substance itself. This is a tool, right? And of course, there are many, many tools. There are many, many different approaches to healing and awakening. Meditation, yoga, spiritual practice, breath work, shamanic drumming. There are so many different ways that people have explored these non-ordinary states of consciousness as a means to cultivate healing and awakening. So, I mean, to answer your question, I think that these, this is going to be one of the central keys, like one of the central components. I do think in a very real sense, like we can't, this, this human evolution, like this great, this great awakening, we can't do it without the plants. Like we can't do it without the plants. I mean, in a very real sense, like even if you just look at the sense that we need trees to breathe, <laughs> like everything on this planet is interconnected and everything on this planet requires, fits into a niche where it requires, it's, it's interdependence, right? And so like we can't do this without the plants, I think. But again, there are very, there are many, many, many different, different tools and there's different aspects of this, you know, awakening or the shift of consciousness, however you want to call it, that is both, there are both social sort of collective dynamics, but, and, and then also the, the individual dynamics. You know, I think for right now, we're a world in need of healing. We need healing. And in spite of having more material comfort and abundance in many senses than ever before, the rates of depression, anxiety are just going through the roof. And, and again, I do think this, a lot of this comes back to this, this, this severing of our connection to spirit, to the sacredness of life. I do think that's this sense of disconnection is, is at the root of so much of this. Psychedelics are one of the most powerful tools that we have of our, you know, kind of repertoire of tools. Psychedelics are easily far and away, and this has been demonstrated again and again and again by psychedelic research over the past, past decades, out of the premier institutions in the world, Johns Hopkins, Imperial College of London, NYU, studies of these substances repeatedly demonstrate that this is essentially a quantum leap for, from all of our existing psychiatric medications and treatments. So like when it comes to this, this all important aspect, healing and, and awakening are always intertwined. As we awaken, we discover more within ourselves that is left to be healed, like this shadow work, right? We discover more and more within our unconscious that we can work on and we can heal. And as we do that, that is a massive step in, in the direction of awakening, growing, and realizing our fullest potential. Psychedelics are right at the intersection of this. They represent a massive, a massive tool for, for healing depression and anxiety and all these things. This is going to be a really, really crucial part or element or dynamic of human evolution, however it looks. There's a lot more to be said. I could keep rambling on about that. I think it does also relate to like in the lab, in science, right? The scientific study of these things is going to unlock new discoveries about consciousness and the nature of reality. That is also a really significant component of this awakening. So we have kind of like the opening of the mind and the opening of the heart, right? And these are the two not separate, but there's a oneness here. There, these are two elements of the awakening on an individual level and on a collective level, and psychedelics address both in a really profound way. It's really fascinating, especially as you said, you know, the research that's coming out from around the world, especially around PTSD and anxiety and depression. I mean, it's it's just incredible the leaps that they're making. And obviously there is processes and red tape and it's moving slowly, but at least it's moving in the right direction. And I know that you hold a lot of retreats in Jamaica and you take people on these journeys of healing. So let's zoom in a little bit there to understand. I'm quite curious when people go on these journeys, and I think you specifically work with psychocybin, if correct me if I'm wrong. And do you see a lot of people like what are the shifts like that you're seeing that you've seen with the, the healing work you've done with people? And I guess my further question is, do they change their life missions? Do they change their, do they then when they've had that moment of oneness, do they then realize like, oh, okay, we got to have more people doing this and we got to realize like we're going to save the planet. And is that kind of the general trajectory or is it really diverse? You know? 
Yeah, another really brilliant question. It is very diverse and it's 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 difficult to put into words. I mean, it is truly amazing that almost on a weekly basis, I see people have these experiences that fundamentally transform their life. So this is set up as a therapeutic retreat, right? It's called Myco Meditations. It's here in Jamaica where psilocybin is completely legal. We have a licensed therapist on every retreat. We have a registered nurse on every retreat, a very, very experienced and highly qualified team. And it is very diverse. The majority of people who come through here are dealing with some sort of mental illness from moderate to severe depression, anxiety, trauma, substance addiction, OCD, you know, quite a range. And so that's usually the focus of why people are here. There are also people who come here for creative inspiration, artists, creatives, musicians. There are people who come here, scientists looking for breakthroughs in, in, in their research, Others who are just really curious, you know, I read a lot about this. I really want to try this. Yes, what we observe is remarkable, remarkable efficacy in the treatment of depression, anxiety, and trauma. Those are kind of like the big three that we see the most often. It's not uncommon to hear people say, to arrive on retreat and say, you know, I've been in therapy for 10 years. I've tried every single SSRI antidepressant, benzodiazepine, like, Nothing, none of these pharmaceutical medications are working. This is a desperate and really difficult place to be in. And here's the difference. All of these psyche, like for mainstream psychiatry, these SSRIs and stuff, this is essentially about symptom management, right? It's like numbing the symptoms. It's numbing the pain. It's making the, the symptoms less severe, which I'm not dismissing whatsoever. I mean, some people need, need this to get out of bed and, and live their life, you know, and I fully respect that. At some point, though, we have to go to the root cause of what's creating these symptoms in the first place, right? I mean, that's, that's obvious. That's intuitive. And even after years, like a daily regimen of SSRIs or benzodiazepines are never going to do that. Never. Two or three doses, one or two doses of psilocybin mushrooms can do that, can go to the very root of the issue and address it in a way that is super meaningful, where there is sustained and profound healing benefits that come out of it. I want to emphasize that the set and the setting, of course, like the context in which it's used and the support that people receive around the experience is arguably just as important as the substance itself. So I'm not for a second saying that everyone should like take mushrooms today in their home. There's a way to do this that increases the odds of getting a really, really positive and meaningful experience out of this. But in the clinical research, Johns Hopkins, the results are just amazing. When it comes to treatment resistant depression, which means this is one of those cases where it's years of therapy, nothing has worked. After two doses of psilocybin, six months later, after two doses of psilocybin, 80% report a significant reduction in uh, their symptoms wow. of depression, a, a clinically significant reduction. 60% uh, report full remission of all symptoms of depression. 60%, right? And they attribute that to their experiences with psilocybin. This is six months later, so these are enduring benefits. And that just highlights the power of this thing, that it's, it's miles ahead of any other, by far, the most effective psychiatric intervention that's ever been documented by a long shot. It's not even close. That's the potential here. The same is true for addressing trauma and anxiety. And I can talk a little bit about why I think that is or what that looks like if you'd like me to. Yeah, please. Okay. Well, so there are, there are really like three keys of psychedelic healing that we observe. One is cognitive insights. We get new in the experience in these non-ordinary states of consciousness. Our brain chemistry is all different. What's called the default mode network in the brain switches down, which is sort of like our conditioned way of seeing the world. So it's like we're seeing everything from a new, a fresh perspective, right? And in this non-ordinary state of consciousness, we're getting all these new insights about our relationships, about our life purpose, about our career. We're connecting the dots about our own personal history. These events in my past might have something to do with why I feel this way today. Connecting the dots, getting these new insights. The second aspect is emotional catharsis, emotional breakthroughs or emotional release, right? Very commonly in these non-ordinary states of consciousness, 
what happens is that there are these powerful emotional releases. And again, this, this has to do with like all these unconscious processes and dynamics. The, sort of the, the overall like framework for understanding here is that we have this threshold between the conscious and the unconscious mind, right? And in these psychedelic experiences, like this threshold is lowering. So like all of these contents from the unconscious mind start bubbling up. It's very common for people to, to report, you know, childhood memories like, oh yeah, I forgot that happened to me. Uh, childhood memories, like different experiences. But of course, this isn't just like a purely cognitive thing. There's an emotional component with that as well. So as we perceive more of this unconscious material, of course, it's not just memories. These are powerfully charged emotions. And psilocybin is called an abreactive, which means that that which has the most emotional charge within our system is most likely what's going to come to the surface first. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the symptoms of depression, of anxiety, and PTSD are clearly tied to unresolved emotions within us, challenging emotions that are very, very difficult to acknowledge, such as shame, rage, guilt, grief, you know, these really painful human emotions, which as a kid, when we experience these things, it's almost like a survival mechanism. Like our psyche is very, very brilliant in what it does on its own accord. As a way to survive and keep on continuing on, it sequesters this away. It pushes it down in order to, yeah, in order basically as a survival instinct, right? Sort of simple example is if a young boy or girl is, is crying and their parents tell them, stop crying, like don't do that, then this is sending a signal to them, push this down, right? And so, but it's not like they just evaporate. They sort of fester in our psyche, in our unconscious, but it's usually outside of the conscious mind. Even though it's outside of the conscious mind, it is still affecting our everyday experience, right? In very profound ways in terms of who we choose as a relationship partner, in terms of like how we, our anxieties, our fears, our self-esteem, our self-image, all these different things, right? So we have these cognitive insights, we have these emotional breakthroughs, these releases of, of energy where people just like, you see the full spectrum laughing so hard that they're crying or um, crying, rageful, everything in between. But the good thing is getting this energy out, having this emotional release almost always results in feeling way lighter, feeling way better. You've taken a load off your shoulders, like you've gotten this thing unstuck, right? It's an energetic experience in that sense. Then the third component of this healing is the mystical experience. This is these profound spiritual experiences where Sort of the, the core feature is a sense of connecting with a reality that's much greater than this one limited lifetime, right? And that appears in many different forms. We can have experiences of feeling ourselves connected to the natural world around us, to, to Mother Earth, to other people, or even on a deeper level, we can have these feelings of connecting to the infinite, the divine, the transcendent. The fundamental core is that this is like a, a, a transpersonal experience, it's beyond our limited human identity, in some cases, even beyond our, our physicality, right? Like beyond our, the boundaries of our physical body. And, you know, you hear these terms like ego death, ego dissolution, right? This is what it is. It's a shift. It's a profound shift in identity where it can, it can feel scary. Like this, uh, this idea of ego death sounds very scary to some people, but if we can relax into it, we're not actually dying. The psychedelic mushroom is not, we're not physically dying and we will survive. It's interesting to see what remains when all of that identity is gone, right? This is how we're getting in touch with true nature, with that deeper essence of our being. And yeah, I mean, these are like peak mountaintop spiritual experiences that are often, you know, described as life-changing. They reframe the way that we see all the issues and problems in our life. In retrospect, I don't have that much to complain about. In retrospect, I have a lot to be grateful for. I can see why all of these things happened along the path to get me here to where I am today. So it's like a very fundamental shift in perspective about the nature of reality, about our sense of self, and about the, the issues that we face in everyday life. So it is, it does often lead to a shift in a sense of, of meaning and purpose in that sense as well. Yeah, no, that was really fascinating. And I think uh, the rewiring and the reframing part, I think is one of the more powerful parts that I've experienced. 
through the process that I've been through as well, because it just, yeah, exactly, exactly that you're able to reflect back and be like, oh, okay, there's just that level of acceptance, but it's like a full body acceptance. And it's, it's really powerful, I think. So that's a really fascinating part as well. Yeah. Beautifully said. Uh, are there any myths or misconceptions or anything like, like common questions that people always ask around that you would like to bust or, or share around this kind of type of healing work or psychedelics? I mean, where this show kind of began was that like, you know, all these myths that I were taught about the, the, the dangers of, of these of these substances that taking psilocybin. Or, or taking LSD is going to, you know, mess up your, your brain chemistry and permanently damage in some way. That is absolutely a myth. But as I was saying earlier, it's, it's important to also address the myth that everyone should be taking these substances, that there's no risks, that we should be handing, putting LSD in the water and just <laughs> giving it out to everyone. It is important to acknowledge that there are risks associated with this. And just as there's risks associated with every single psychiatric medication and psychiatric intervention that's known to man, there is some aspect of risk. The risk with psilocybin and other psychedelics is not a physical one. It's not physiological. These are just on a purely physical level. These are some of the safest substances that we can take. It's basically impossible to overdose. But, you know, this, as I mentioned earlier, this can be a mentally destabilizing experience. Not everyone is in a position in their life to benefit from psychedelics today, right now. Because it can be such an intense experience that in many cases feels more real than this reality. While you're in that other state of consciousness, even if it's a, a, a very pleasant experience, you can get back from that and say like, what the, like, what am I supposed to do with that? What did I just see? Challenging some of our core beliefs which I think is a good thing in some senses, but again, it can feel very overwhelming. And if you don't have someone there to support you through the process, then it can feel like a massive challenge that is actually an obstacle in our lives to like go and do the things that we need to do. I think that's a very rare, but it's there. It needs to be acknowledged and addressed. And then also as well, people who have any kind of like psychotic features like schizophrenia, if they take psychedelics, this can trigger a psychotic episode that lasts beyond the effects of the substance itself, which again can be destabilizing. The same is true for people with bipolar. People who have bipolar, a psychedelic experience can trigger a manic episode, which then that can potentially continue for days or weeks after the effects of the substance itself has worn off. So it's important to be aware of all that. Definitely. Thank you for sharing. So what are any advice or tips or guidance that you would give for people who are being called to go on a healing experience or to seek out some kind of therapy or experience psychedelics? The more intentionally that we approach this thing, the more benefit that we're likely to receive. Uh, that, that means a lot of different things, right? First of all, it's important to ask ourselves, like, what draws us to this experience? What do we hope to gain from it? What do we hope to work on? What do we hope to see or experience and why? Getting that sense of inner clarity, right? And what this means is like beginning, starting to engage with this process of shadow work, of self-work before we like arrive at the retreat center or wherever we're going. A lot of people want the medicine to do the healing to them but we have to recognize that we have to claim our own responsibility for our role in this healing process. That it does begin within, that this is a very powerful tool, but at the end of the day, it's up to us how we make meaning of this experience. It's up to us how we use this experience and actually apply what we gained in our life, right? And yeah, there are ways to sort of prime ourselves to get the most out of it. And I do think that reflecting inwardly and really looking, this is a hard thing to do, but to ask ourselves and be very, very honest with ourselves, what is it that is within me that I, I, I need to work on? Yeah. So bring that, starting to cultivate that awareness is priming us for the psychedelic experience. There's a lot of other things to do as well, such as reading, relevant learning, intellectually reading relevant research and relevant books from other psychedelic explorers who have come before us. There's a lot to learn from that. And probably the 
single biggest key is, is meditation. If you ask me, beginning some, you know, and you can take very t small baby steps with this, but I think that beginning to develop some sort of meditation or mindfulness practice in our everyday lives, this is working on many, many levels. It is, that is the core part of like this self-work of this introspection, right? It is, comes through meditative states of consciousness, but through meditating, this is going to help to prime us for the experience. And when we're actually in the experience, it's going to allow us to travel much more deeply and get a lot more benefit out of it. Mm, thank you for sharing. I think it's some really important points there. And yeah, I think the intention behind it is, is very powerful and it really sets the tone and the container for the entire experience. So I think, yeah, we'll just drill that message home again. So how do you think we can live wide awake? Well, it always begins with now, right? I mean, presence is the doorway for all awakening. It always comes back to the present moment. And, and you know, that can kind of sound like a, like a trope or a, a cliche in, in, in spiritual communities, but the power of now that Eckhart Tolle speaks really beautifully about all of the different spiritual traditions from all over the world, from all throughout time, all of the different spiritual practices all universally point us back to presence, right? Point us back to presence where I see the process of awakening and living more consciously as similar to the blossoming of a flower, just in the same way that you can't peel open a seed and pull a flower out of the seed, right? That's counterproductive. It, 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 it won't work. However, if the right conditions are present, then the flower will blossom. There's water, sunlight, nutrients. The flower will blossom just because life is a divine miracle. And that's how this thing works. In the same way, there's nothing that we can ever do to force this awakening to happen to force ourselves to become more consciousness or more conscious to coerce these these higher states of consciousness out of it, it, if the right conditions are present it will happen on its own it's more about creating this 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 container rather than you know telling ourselves that we have to do this thing and what what like the the water the sunlight the nutrients presence it's so it's so simple in a sense it's really one way to understand this is that only the ego, like spiritual awakening is fundamentally becoming more conscious, fundamentally about like seeing through the ego, getting in touch with, with true nature, with that deeper essence of our being and knowing our oneness. Isn't it interesting that only the ego can really want enlightenment? Only the ego can really want to become more awakened, more aware, and to try to figure out like, how do I do this thing? How do I fix all these problems? True nature, the deepest truth of what we are, when we're resting in presence, like for me, this is what all spiritual practice ultimately comes back to. Resting in presence, resting in awareness, feeling inwardly, and rather than trying to do things and exert effort to make it happen, it's a relaxation. It's a relaxation of all, all like, like physically, the tension in our body, relaxing very importantly, the mind, uh, I think this is probably the single most massive breakthrough in, in becoming more conscious and becoming more aware is learning to disidentify from the mind or to, to find a space between true self and, and mind because most of us were just so caught up in this mind all the time. The hamster wheel, it never stops spinning. And like this is something I see in the psychedelic experience as well. Like people who are up here all the time, have a more challenging, tend to have more challenging experiences with psychedelics. This is about heart-centered awareness, right? Like if we think about what it means to become centered, to feel into our core, the very core of our being, it's here. It's not up here. It's like someone once described like, if this is our house, everyone sp spends all their time living in the attic. <laughs> we got like this whole house, you know what I'm saying? So like it, it is like actually this heart-centered awareness or body awareness is a key, is a doorway to cultivating these states of, of presence and really just relaxing into life as it is. And a lot of people say, how do I do that? How do I surrender? That's the paradox. You, there's nothing you can do to, to surrender. It's just about letting go and releasing it and being. The emphasis is on being rather than doing, right? There's also a whole conversation to be had about how to balance 
being and doing because like there is like in order to live as a human, there are things that we have to do, right? This is sort of the next phase of, of well, it always like kind of cycles together of integrating these states of presence and higher consciousness into our everyday lives, right? Letting that infuse our everyday lives. So, yeah. I resonated with so much of that because I've been on my own spiritual journey for a while now. And every time I, ha I speak with a healer or I go through some kind of experience, the message is always like, Steph, you cannot rush your consciousness, like your evolution, your awakening. Like you just need to let go and surrender, be patient. Like it is unfolding as it's meant to, but being like a very impatient person that lives a lot in the attic, <laughs> I've always struggled with it. So just hearing it again, it's like such a beautiful reminder that yes, it all comes down to presence, letting go and just really having those moments of awe. And I loved how you described that earlier in the interview, because that for me is when I feel most alive is when I drop into a complete sense of awe for nature or like a particular animal or sunsets always do it for me. And that is the, the happiest moments that I can count in my life is when I'm fully present, fully in awe. And that is like a tool that I use to like keep coming back to, okay, this is what it needs to feel like. This is where I want to be. So yeah, thank you for all those beautiful reminders. And uh, yeah, for, for sharing everything with us today, I have really learned a lot in this conversation and had a lot of really beautiful reminders. So I'm really grateful for you for joining us and sharing. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. It's my absolute pleasure. I really, I really enjoyed the conversation. Three things I'm taking away from this conversation with Jonas. Firstly, science is the outwardly focus and spirituality is the inwardly focus. And the unification of the two might be what just saves us. Secondly, we need to see the planet and nature as an extension of ourselves, not something to exploit. And thirdly, presence is the doorway for all awakening. It begins with each and every one of us. Healing and awakening are always entwined. I'm curious, what did you think about the episode and what were your main takeaways? Is there a topic you want me to dive deeper into? I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at Steph L. Dixon or at Live Wide Awake. If you got something out of the podcast and you want to continue this journey with us, consider subscribing and supporting. I hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you ready to awaken. And until next time, live wide awake.